0: If you don't have a Bible, um, we're actually out of Bibles. We need to order more. Uh, praise God! You guys have been taking the Bibles, so we love to give them out. So if you if you have one and brought it back, open it up and go to Luke chapter nineteen. And before we dive into Luke chapter nineteen, um, we had um, something that happens every four years happen on Friday, which is a uh, president is uh, set into office. And so uh, we're going to do what we continue to do to do every four years. It's nothing new. We pray for that president. And so uh, why don't you join me in asking that God would use him despite him and that God would continue to bring about justice and peace in the ways that he sees as best and good for his people. Uh, for we trust in God's authority and we trust in the king above kings, uh, above earthly kings as our refuge and resting place. And so as the people of God, uh, we don't get too riled or unrested. Uh, because we know who we serve and we know who is always good and always perfect and all they did us. So uh, let's go to him and then we're going to roll into Luke uh, 19. Uh, God, we just take a moment as we sit as people of your kingdom and your nation still living as exiles here in a present culture, in a present world, in a present nation. Um, God, we know you've commanded and given us things to and how to operate, Lord, as in the world, yet not of the world. And so, God, would you help us to be good, bold, healthy, helpful witnesses of a good, kind King Jesus. Father, we pray for President Trump. We pray that you would humble him. We pray that you would give him wisdom that he does not have. We pray that wisdom from yourself would be granted to him. We pray that you would save him. We pray that you would give him a repentant heart. Father, we pray that you would use this man despite this man. We know that this is nothing new in history. We're thankful that imperfect prophets and wicked kings and evil men still did ultimately everything under the sovereign good hand of God. So God, might we trust you more in that place. We pray that you would bring justice, that you would bring peace, that God, you would allow him and the members of Congress to navigate and make decisions that would ultimately be pleasing to your name. Father, protect us, God, give us courage, give us deeper desires for you in this present age that we live, give us a a greater uh, hunger and love for you and desire for you, that God, as the gospel transcends people and transcends culture, God, might we see that happen, not ultimately through government, but through your people. So God, would you continue to mold and shape and refine your church, God, so that we might be the people you've asked us to be. God, uh, give us eyes to see this morning. We desperately need illumination. We need to be able to see the things that we can't naturally see. We need to be able to hear the things that we can't naturally hear. I pray the word of God would be sweet to us, that it would change us, transform us, not just make us nicer people, but continue to make us new. In Christ, we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen, Luke chapter 19, Luke chapter 19, and if uh, you're opening Luke chapter 19 and you have any church background at all, you're going, oh, well, this is uh, Zacchaeus, this is the familiar story, and I don't know what you've been taught uh, growing up. All of you probably know the song, so we could probably even do it all together. We're not going to, but um, you know, Zacchaeus was a wee little man. He was all torso, he was short in stature, and he climbed the tree, and Jesus saw him, and then he went to his house. Now, here's the thing I want you to see today. Um, I grew up singing that song. I grew up with a church background. I grew up uh, hearing about and knowing about this guy, Zacchaeus, mostly just through the songs. But here's here's the problem. The song falls short of of the greatest point of the whole story. So um, you don't sing about when he goes back and says he's going to pay everybody back who he rips off and that Jesus says salvation has come to your house. You just get to sing that he climbed a tree and Jesus said, hey, I want to go to your house today. Now that's a great part of the story, but I wish we could finish that song. Maybe someone can write it so that we can actually finish out to all the way to verse 10 as to the fullness of what God is trying to say to us in this great story. So uh, Luke chapter 19 is where we're going to be with the story of Zacchaeus. And um, if you are new dropping in, new to Christianity, new to the things of the Bible, here's what basically you're seeing happen today is uh, we're a group of people that love to worship um, God and worship um, that God who became man, and that is his son Jesus. And so we primarily worship Jesus Christ because he is the one who everything revolves around. He is the only one who can make us right with God. He's the only one who can pay our debt that we, that's demanded by a holy God. He's the the only one who can gift righteousness that we desperately need in our unrighteous selves. He's the only one who can reconcile all that is fractured post Genesis 3 and make it right to God himself, and so we love celebrating him through singing songs, that's why we just sang songs that proclaim about who he is and what he's done. We love to worship Jesus by sitting under the the scriptures. We believe this is the only perfect thing outside of Jesus that he has given to us, and we believe as we read it, it perfects us. We also love to worship Jesus by observing the Lord's Supper each week. That's where we get nourished by the benefits, the saving benefits of his broken, broken body and shed blood for our sins. And then we also give as a people of God. If you're visiting, we don't want you to give. Uh, We just want you to sit and think about Jesus and be uh, open to what God might say to you. But if you consider this your church home, we give in the small silver boxes in the back because God gave us tremendously, infinitely, immeasurably generously to us in his son Jesus. And so uh, it's just out of response that we do that. So uh, we're going to dive in and and ask uh, and hope that that God would show us some things. Where we pick up this morning, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. Now, if you've been tracking with us, we've been in Luke for uh, about two years. Years now, We're going to finish on Easter Sunday, I promise. Some of you guys are asking, are we ever going to teach another book here? Yeah, we are, uh, and we're going to land on Easter Sunday in Luke 24 and, and wrap it up. But, but here's what's been happening is we've been walking for, for two years together as, as a people seeing and looking at Jesus Christ and his person in ministry. And here's why that's wonderful. Uh, Luke, who's writing this gospel to this guy, Theophilus, who's a Roman official, who's skeptical of the things of God and Christianity, he wants to lay before him that this Jesus Christ isn't just some historical figure. He's not just a moral man. He's not just some guy that grants you some wisdom and some ideas on how to live better. He actually transforms you as you see what he does, how he lives, and what he ultimately accomplishes in his life, death, and resurrection. And so everything is pointing to the cross. So chapter 9 on, we saw Jesus set his face to Jerusalem to now where he will go and gladly give in glad submission to the Father his life as a ransom for sin. And so as he does that, he teaches, he preaches, he performs miracles. People are enamored by him. Most people are just curious, right? Not everybody's like really wanting him as Lord. Most people are like, oh, well, this is really clever and neat and interesting. Wow, he rose that guy from the dead. That's pretty amazing. So I'm going to follow him. But but few are actually putting their weight and their trust in this man as savior, as king. And here we're going to see a very unlikely candidate do that. All right? So so he's heading to Jericho, uh, chapter 19. Jericho just, you know, is a very wealthy, prominent, flourishing town at this time, it was common for people to go through Jericho all the time to get to Jerusalem. Remember, this is a Passover season, the annual celebration of people, thousands of people communing all the way up to Jerusalem so that they could worship God where his presence was, to offer sacrifices for sin. Ultimately, we know we don't do that anymore because Jesus was our sacrifice for sin. And so as they're doing this, they're stopping at towns, they're gathering supplies, they're going through places, and Jericho is one of those. We saw last week a blind beggar get saved by Jesus. Jesus reaching out to him and healing him and um, it was known as the city of palms it was a beautiful place it was a wealthy place a lot of wealthy people would travel to jericho and stay there this is why it was the best centers for taxation this is why if you're gonna uh, set up all your chief tax collectors and put them somewhere in towns jericho is the place to go because you're, Lord willing, going to get a lot of money. And so it's one of the greatest taxation centers in Palestine. And Jericho is where Jesus will encounter a tax collector. Not just a tax collector, but a chief tax collector. So he's the traitor of traitors. He's rolling at hot money. He has got a lot. And he's doing it through extorting his own people to pay off the people who oppress his own people. Now this was seen as unforgivable. Unforgivable if you were a Jew. So here, it's, it's, uh, we're going to see this, Jericho's where Jesus encounters him, and Luke's the only one who reveals this story, so let's thank Luke, the physician, for giving this to us, or we wouldn't know the transformation that we could see in this story and the privilege of revealing this story. And so Luke always wants us to learn something about the God-man Jesus Christ. Let's look at verse 1, where Jesus enters the city. Uh, verse 1, he entered, that's Jesus, entered Jericho and was passing through, and there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector, and he was rich, and he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not, because he was of small stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. Okay, so um, Jesus is heading to Jerusalem to give his life as a ransom for sinners, to die as their substitute, and to also be their savior. And as he's heading there, it's amazing, he's passing through this town, Jericho, and there's a man in the crowd named Zacchaeus. Now, there are basically three things anyone in Jericho would know about this guy, Zacchaeus, okay? Um, Number one is um, he's very short. People would have known him because he was extorting them. Uh, They would have known he was short in stature. Number two, they would have known that he was deeply despised and hated right, because he was paying off a government that oppressed his own people, okay, this was, this was awful, this was like you uh, looking at your neighbor who worked for an agency who basically killed some of your family members, right, I mean, that would be a horribly wicked thing, you would despise them, you would probably have a lot of anger towards them, aggression towards them, hate towards them, and so this is who is. The, the third thing they would know is he's getting deeply rich off his cut of the revenues, Okay, they're, they're going to know that he's not only feeding this massive Roman Empire and Roman garrison and Roman people, he's also getting super wealthy off of these revenues. And we've discussed tax collectors already, but um, in other sections, but as review, at this time that Luke is writing, um, Rome ruled the known world, right? One of the largest territories that you will ever see occupied, from like India all the way up to England. And, and here's the thing, they were ruthless, they were wicked, they were brutal. Um, there, open your history book, you'll see that they uh, crucified outside city gates and, and city places over forty to 50,000 men, women, and children. You're going to see this is like a, a deeply brutal, horrific empire. And here's the thing, to have such a big army that covers such a big period of land, how are you going to fund that type of army? Well, taxes is your best shot. And so what they would do is they would want these tax collectors that would just start taxing all these places really to fund their army, really to fund their purposes. And so at times there were Jewish citizens, Jewish people who would actually basically pay the right to tax their own people. And so this was looked at as basically the, the biggest act of treason. You were a traitor to your own people. So you're paying the people who oppress your people to continue to oppress them. And so that's how people saw Zacchaeus. They hated him. And especially knowing he's a chief tax collector, that he's getting bigger cuts through extortion, through all of the ways that he is oppressing people, made them not like him at all. And so Rome was so large that it rules this territory. They're funding this massive army. And here's the amazing thing. Even though he's a man who reached the top of his profession, even though he's a man who's probably one of the most hated men in the district, It's incredible in the story because there is something happening in his heart. Like there's some shift happening in his heart to where there's something about Jesus that bothers him with curiosity. Because he really wants to see him. Now, he had not seen Jesus. He had heard of Jesus. And so so here's what you're kind of seeing play out in this is, is there's no doubt that Zacchaeus had heard the teachings of Jesus there's no doubt those made their way to him. There is no doubt that, that Zacchaeus had heard about the raising of Lazarus from the dead. There's no doubt that he probably heard about this Jesus who was apparently claiming to be God who actually invited and sat with tax collectors and sinners. Like this, this God man that actually ate with the most outcast, the lowest of the low, the riprap, the scum of society. Those that people hated. He was showing, he was extending grace and mercy to them. There's no doubt Zacchaeus knew of these things, had heard these things, was aware of these things. And so here is Zacchaeus, an outcast himself, a hated man, despised man, and yet instead of running and hiding, there's something desperate in this man to see Jesus. This is total desperation. He's climbing a tree. You okay, know, This is like super weird in modern times. Like one of the wealthiest men climbing a tree, you would never see that. Like, you're not seeing Warren Buffett climbing a tree, right? You're not going to see that. Like, you're not walking into town, and it's a celebration, you see Warren Buffett or Mark Zuckerberg or Bill Gates, you're not seeing that. Like, that's, this is very odd. But right? So the desperation of this man goes well beyond him, just like curious about him, he sees something, he hears something about Jesus that is much more deep and much more profound to where he's willing to climb a tree to try to see him try to gain his attention to try to make himself aware and you can see this shift in his heart and as he enters Jericho Zacchaeus hears he's coming wants to see him and listen he's probably getting elbowed he's probably getting punched the crowd loves that Zacchaeus is around them now we don't know what exactly it means that the crowd prevented him we know he's short and he can't see over people's heads but we know another part is probably they use this opportunity to kind of jab him they would do that often in big crowds they saw people like tax collectors they didn't like they would do things to them in a way of getting back at them that they couldn't do, couldn't do in the governmental form but in public form. And so Zacchaeus, for a reason, he can't see Jesus. He knows the crowd hates him. He can feel that. So he sprints ahead, right? He, he runs ahead and he tries to find a place where he can get up. So he finds a sycamore tree that's really like a synonymous with a, with a mulberry fig tree. It's pretty much the same tree. It's got a huge trunk. It's not very high. It's easy to climb. It's got long branches that fork out to the side horizontally. And so uh, he's a little guy. He's all torso like me. So it's really easy for him to kind of climb up there, wedge himself, walks up, and he can hear the crowd rushing towards him. He can hear, little children, he can hear the wildfire of gossip he can hear all that stuff coming towards him as Jesus approaches and he has his spot where he can see him, he can finally lay his eyes on this Jesus he's been hearing about so as Jesus approaches and as he climbs this tree verse 5, Jesus of Nazareth is coming this way and when Jesus came to the place, that's the place Zacchaeus was up in the tree he looked up and said to him I wish I could have been there. I mean, this is just silliness. Hey, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. (laughs) So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, this is everybody watching, everybody knowing who Zacchaeus is, knowing he's a chief tax collector. He probably tax collected in, in Jericho all the time. This was not new for him. They all grumbled. They were not joyous. They grumbled and said, he has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. So Jesus is approaching, he's with the crowd, everybody's riling up with him, everybody's excited, some for curiosity, some because they genuinely wanna know who he is and if he's really who he claims to be. You got other people who are just kind of trying to get at him, you got the Pharisees, the religious elite that are always around trying to poke jabs, catch him in a conversation, catch him in a a bad thought or something and here you have a genuine, outcast, despised man who I think realizes all of his guilt, realizes all of his shame to the point where he doesn't care what people think, climbs a tree, looks out, Jesus approaches and Jesus Jesus calls him out by name. Is this not what Jesus does to you when he saved you? He calls you by name. Mike, John, Sarah, I'm here for you. In your guilt, in your shame, in your wickedness, in your vile rebellion against my name, in the belittlement of the God of the universe who dwells in infinite perfections, in your desire to be God and not submit to me as good righteous King Jesus, I'm calling out to you. I'm calling you by name. This is calling into friendship. That's what's amazing about the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, right, is that God takes men and women, right, us, who were once enemies of God, right, and makes them friends with God, that's what he's doing with Zacchaeus. He was not only an enemy to the people, he was more profoundly an enemy to a holy righteous God. And here is so, so beautiful, he calls him out by name as he looks up in the tree and sees Zacchaeus, he calls to him and calls him into friendship. And this is so profound, brothers and sisters, that the God of the universe and the personal work of Jesus makes us friends. Not just a God who's a deity that we can know and submit to, but know and be friend. That's the God of the universe, this is King Jesus. This is what he does. And bold of Jesus, I mean Jesus can do whatever he wants, right? because he's God, but he basically looks up and says, hey Zacchaeus, we're having a meal today, and guess what, it's your place. Right, oh and I got 12 guys, we're all hungry, let's go. I mean, can you imagine this? Like, he's just inviting himself in now, listen, uh, if Jesus did that to any of us, we'd say absolutely. Right, I mean, whatever you want. So Zacchaeus immediately doesn't waste any time, hurriedly comes out of the tree and receives Jesus joyfully. I want you to notice that he received him joyfully. I feel like there's this pervasive thought just, and, and I know this kind of growing up in the evangelical world and Christian circles and Christian bubbles and uh, just what it means is, is, okay, you are obligated to obey, you're obligated to do. I remember my total understanding of the Christian faith is just avoid everything God hates, right? So I'm just not gonna drink, I'm not gonna cuss, I'm not gonna look at it girl go wrong, I'm not gonna be sexually involved, I'm not gonna do any of those things. Yet inwardly, my heart was deeply wicked and self-righteous and I built up anger in my heart and resentment and covetousness and pride and arrogance and the list goes on that is equally as damning as all of the outward actions of sin and so here we see a man who realizes and sees him and receives him joyfully and here's why I say that if you don't understand who Jesus is accurately you will not receive him joyfully this is so important like if, if you constantly, as you as you read the scriptures and, and and see God, if you do not get that He gives His righteous life for your sinful life, if you do not get that He dies for your death that you owed, if you do not get that He absorbs Wrath, eternal wrath on the Son Himself instead of you that you deserve. If you do not get that this great exchange happens to where all that you try to do and all that you try to earn and all that you try to do in yourself to make you holy and make you righteous is vanity outside of Jesus, you will not receive Him joyfully. If you believe that He's out to rob you, if you believe He's out to take from you, if you believe He's not to lead you in a deeper life and deeper meaning, if you believe rules are simply to occupy you and put you in a fence and not break out of the fence, actually live the fullness of life that God wired you to live. he will not receive Jesus joyfully. Zacchaeus understands, revealed through the Holy Spirit of God, who Jesus is and what he's actually inviting him into. And he receives him joyfully. Now we're gonna see this is real based upon the repentance that's evidenced later. But he receives Jesus joyfully. (laughs) It's amazing, he understands the ways the enemy will lie, the way that your sin will lie, how it'll lie to you in your pain, it'll lie to you in your pleasure. It'll say in your pain, God is not good, God is not kind, God is not in control, God's love has left you. And when you're just pursuing your temporal fantasies, that's better than him, it'll satisfy more. It'll bring about unending joy. He lies in all of those things, and Jesus shows us that there's more joy having him in our pain and him than our pleasure. And Zacchaeus understands this even though he had everything the world could offer him with money, with esteem, with prestige. It's amazing the parallel almost. If you guys were here two weeks ago with the rich young ruler, right? I mean, you've got the rich young ruler who Jesus just aggressively goes after his God, not his behavior. He goes, well, one thing you lack that's basically not telling him to do anything with, with has nothing to do with money or being generous to the poor. He's trying to reveal in his heart where it lacks worship to the God of the universe and he walks away sad, not happy. Yet here, you have a man who's confronted with the issue of idolatry in his heart who actually receives Jesus joyfully. Profound. And this is why Zacchaeus is overjoyed and everybody else is outraged. They don't see him clearly. They don't understand Jesus accurately. <laughs> They're deceived in their self-righteousness. Their perspective, the crowd is us? Yeah, I mean, we're, look at us. I man. we're pretty lovable. We're... course God loves us. Zacchaeus, he's a sinner. This is what you're seeing in the crowd. This is why I say often, brothers and sisters, Christian maturity consistently looks inward and immaturity looks more outward. So, so here's the thing, as you grow in your walk with Jesus, as you experience more of the wonders of Jesus and the more of his personal work towards you, as you experience more of the treasures and infinite mercy that was granted to you in the cross of Jesus Christ, you grow in maturity, which makes you more aware of your sin than before. Instead of an immaturity that just constantly looks outside the fence that, well, they're not as holy as me, they're not as good as me, they're not you know, following up with everything else that I'm doing, right? See, that, that's immaturity, Maturity first always says, hey, look at my heart. It's laid bare before the king. Here's where I need to reconstruct and correct what is wrong and fractured and off. And so Jesus is revealing, Luke is revealing through this gospel that we see people who are outraged and then Zacchaeus who is overjoyed. And what is Jesus doing? Why is he calling Zacchaeus out? He's going into the darkest spaces of sin and shame and saying, come out into the light. Like, that's what the gospel does, right? I mean, it literally lays you naked. You can't hide. There's no corner you can crawl in, no rug you can get under. I mean, God sees all things. You have no space to go where he's not gonna say, I see it. Right, So here he says, hey, come out in the light, because you come out in the light, there is joy in the light, there is freedom in the light, there is fullness of life in the light, in letting God heal you from your confession of sin. I love it. He's going to make a public confession of his sin in just a minute. That's why I love it. Jesus doesn't just forgive people, he changes them. Like, the Christian message is not, well, I mean, I can just keep doing my sin, God will just keep forgiving me, and then I'll just keep doing my sin, because God will just forgive me, right? It's, no, God forgives you, then he changes you. It's not one-dimensional. And so here we have them just angry, and so let me encourage you, and let me stop and ask a question here. Who is it in your world, in your life, that if God showed kindness to, if God showed mercy to, if God showed forgiveness to, you would grumble, you would not rejoice? And it may be somebody who has deeply wounded you, who's deeply despised by you? Who is it that if, that if God saved them, if God made them right with God, if God actually today had them walking in joy with the Lord, would you genuinely rejoice with? I'm sure for some of you, there are literally people's faces coming to mind. Because, because here's the thing. In that moment, you are missing the grace of God altogether. Because those of us who have been purchased by grace are active agents of grace. Right? So the very grace that you rejoice in, we must fundamentally rejoice when we see it in other people. I can't tell you how much I've seen in, in my short eight years of pastoral ministry people who just rejoice at their salvation and then we see somebody, a crook, extortioner, somebody who they think is super wicked and super outside the fence and shouldn't belong anywhere in the camp, definitely not in the church, right? As soon as grace is shown to them, as soon as they lavish Jesus, they go, "Well, hold on a second. I mean, I deserve the grace of Jesus Christ, but that person definitely doesn't. I mean, thank you for being kind to me, but do you, do you, do you really earnestly, sincerely desire to see them face to face with Jesus, loving him, knowing him, maturing in him? Or does it give you in those secret spots of your heart some joy in knowing that they don't? Because here we see when others, no matter how wicked or outcast they are, when they make face to face with Jesus Christ, when they embrace him as Lord, which he will do, we're called to rejoice in that not be skeptical, not shame, but rejoice in that. It affects a whole community of people. And I would say where there is not that in our hearts, we need to repent and seek restoration from Jesus over our hardened hearts. I think that reveals something about us as the people of God. So let me also mention at this point, with all of that said, something I hear all the time okay, and it's normally with young people, so we got a lot of young people, so I'm talking to you, but I'm also talking to anybody else who this category fits for, is we think that all the texts like this, we love reading these texts that say, well, uh, you know, the religious called Jesus out of these rip scum places where you go and eat with sinners and go into the bar and go into the prostitute's houses, and, and they would always call him out, yeah, he went in there, so that means we should go in there, and we should do that. Okay. But, but here's what I've found more often than not. Um, what's your reason for really doing that? So here's a good question to ask yourself. Am I entering those spaces, am I entering those places to genuinely pray that people might see Jesus Christ and be saved from their sin, or am I being selfish? Because here's what Jesus continually does, and here's what's interesting. If, if, if you look at Jesus' life every time he does it, here's what you constantly see. Every time Jesus Christ goes into these places, goes into these spaces, you either see him rebuke everybody who's there or everybody repents of sin and gets saved. So here's the great question I'm always asking, which one are you doing? Right, as you go in there, are people getting rebuked for sin and love towards Jesus or their hearts being massaged about the goodness and grace of God or are you lovingly engaging and calling them and showing them the way to the truth outside of falsehood? Or are you there just to participate? Because here we see, and yes, this is a line to walk. Yes, this is a massage line. Yes, there's wisdom. And hey, if you just got out of alcohol addiction, don't be get the guy who goes in the bar to do a Bible study. I mean, I've talked with guys about that. It's like, no, that's dumb. That's not wisdom, right? The Bible says walk in wisdom. So that, that's foolishness, right? You got to go where you know God's wired you, given you strength, given you ability, given you restriction in the Christian freedom lanes. But here's the other thing we're called to do, right? We're also, yes, called to be a friend of sinners just like Jesus, but but here's what that means. Um, we're called to play in this unique lane where we are in the world yet not of the world. Where we're not just accepted by the cool crowd do whatever it does, but we are so confident in God's word that we lovingly walk with men, women, and children so that they might know what is true and not what is false. All the while understanding you can't save anybody. You can pray God would save them. You can answer questions. You can have them in your home. You can have them over for a good meal. You can actively engage their space and go into where they're employed or the things that they like to do. But here's the thing would God give us hearts to feel deeply for them? Feel the weight of their lostness? Feel the weight of their life outside of Jesus Christ? Because people are not projects. Jesus never saw people as projects. We don't give them silver bullets. We lovingly walk, we lovingly engage, we lovingly minister, all the while praying that these people might be brought to love for Jesus. Where can you engage in meaningful friendships? I mean, is this not the incarnation of Jesus Christ? I mean, he came to dwell with all the people who rebelled against him, right? So so here's just a a question or or just a thought. Um, I say a lot. Acts 17, it says that God appointed times and seasons that you would live where you live so that God would not be far off. And I always say, God, is not far off because you live there. So here's the thing I'm going to continue to say. You can be a friend to sinners where God has already meaningfully placed you. You don't have to go looking for these special areas. Jesus, I don't know where you, well, the company you work in, the neighborhood you live in. The soccer teams, you know, the soccer teams that you go where your kids play at, the same playground you go to, where those same people are there. I mean, that's something my wife and I gen- genuinely try to do often. Is we're always looking for ways on our street, in our path, to just engage the people God's already put us in front of to engage. Now it's kind of easy for me because everybody knows I'm the pastor. So either run or they engage, right? I mean, so I realize that's a little bit of like an upper hand. But everyone on the street now knows that's the pastor. That's the kid. He should be more righteous than he is. But hey, can we talk a little bit about the things of God, like that? It's just what happens. And so here, here's what we did, you know, on uh, New Year's Eve. They, they invited us over. We went over. We had a good glass of wine. We were enjoying conversation. And all the while talking about here's what God has done for us. Here's how Jesus has worked. Trying to engage them in ways where they are on their turf right next door to our house. You've got to be a friend to sinners. And really it starts with first weeping over their lostness. Because if you're just trying to win points for yourself, that never goes well. That just accumulates judgment and arrogance and pride, which is never good. So you want to first pray that God would genuinely give you a breaking heart for those who do not know Jesus. And one of the things that has helped me tremendously is praying daily for specific names of people who do not know Jesus Christ. I'm telling you, the more that I pray for them by name, the more my heart longs for them to know him. Maybe it's your boss, maybe it's your coworker, maybe it's your neighbor. Maybe it's a family member. I mean, you start practicing daily petition, daily But This is what Paul did. And you see always his earnest prayers that God would have them saved move him in his ministry to caring and loving them towards the cross of Jesus Christ. So here we see Jesus being a friend of sinners, living in the world yet not of it. Jesus never sinned. Everybody accused him of, oh, he eats and drinks with the sinners. No, he never overate, never overdrank. He wasn't a glutton. He wasn't a drunkard but he wisely engaged them. Verse eight, here's what happens. From him loving and befriending the sinner, calling him out, and Zacchaeus seeing the goodness of Jesus Christ and receiving him joyfully. And Zacchaeus stood. Now now some time has passed here, likely. They're back at his house. There was some conversation. We don't know what took place. I wish we did. But here's the result. Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, that's Jesus. He's also Lord. Behold And he calls him Lord. Not hey Jesus, not hey moral guy. He says, behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house, since he is a son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. At this point, all the watchers and wonders are going, well, hold on a second. I mean, if you're going to show this scum of society mercy, if you're going to show him forgiveness, if you're going to just make him new, if you're going to rescue this man, I mean, what about justice, right? What about all the stuff he's done? What about the people he's ripped off? What about the the money he's accumulated for himself in unrighteous wealth? I mean, you're just going to forgive him and then just erase all of that? Amazing. What about all the lives who were belittled and abused? What about the evil he's already done? And Zacchaeus responds with a public display of repentance. First, it's a change of allegiance. It's the first thing that happens in his heart. He sees, first thing is he looks at Jesus and calls him Lord. This indicates something's happened inwardly in his heart and in his allegiance. Now, this is a profound thing to say. We saw it last week that we're in a time and place when Luke is written, when the Roman government ruled over everyone, and it was the only thing to say was Caesar is Lord, Caesar is God, Caesar is King, right? And here basically Zacchaeus is verbally saying out loud in front of everybody who's witnessing. We know they're witnessing because they all look at this and ask things about this. He he says publicly, Caesar's not my Lord anymore, Jesus is. Caesar's not my God anymore, Jesus is. He's above kings, he's above rulers, he's above all the lands, it's Jesus. Because here's what would happen. Roman occupiers would come in for taxation purposes and you know, they used to actually put up pictures of Caesar and they used to say, hey, bow down and worship Caesar and if people didn't, they slaughtered the whole town. Zacchaeus is gone. he's my Lord. That's like Romans 10, nine to 10. If you confess your mouth that Jesus is the Lord, believe that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved, you know what type of confession that was? That was you willing to be killed. That was if you confess publicly with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, it demonstrates that you're publicly surrendering to God. See, see, some ways that text has been abused a little bit where we just say, well, just confess with your mouth, just say it. Well, okay, we could say it. You're probably not going to be beheaded tomorrow. That ups the ante a little bit, right? If you know that your head might go out on a platter after you say that in here, well, we might triple think whether we really want him as Lord, right? And here Zacchaeus has such transformation, sees God as so good, as so saving, as so welcoming to him, he sees the lavish kindness and grace and mercy of Jesus Christ and what he will do on the cross of Jesus Christ that he says, you're my Lord, you're my King, at a time where that was dangerous to say profound that he says this. He makes a public statement. This is what we saw in the blind beggar last week, right? He's son of David. He's king of kings. You guys are all looking for him. I'm appealing to who he is. And then second, what do you see? A change of life. So his allegiance shifts and his life changes. That's what repentance is. That's what becoming a Christian is. And here you see him say right away publicly, hey, tell me how I've ripped off everybody and then I'll go pay them fourfold for what I ripped them off. This is also a public declaration. He's saying this out loud, people can hear him. So he's saying, hey, everybody in this room, hey, if I've ripped off anybody, I'll come and pay you fourfold. Can you imagine the ripple effect in the community? You know, when you see repentance, everyone should rejoice because we all get to rejoice in the life that is changed. And so here you have a man who says, hey, oh, you, I scammed you. Hey, your house is in foreclosure. Hey, your kids can't go to college. Hey, you lost your two cars. Hey, I'll pay you back fourfold what I stole. Good day for everybody. Can you imagine in the kitchen, you with your wife? Hey, hey, remember that kid? Yeah, I hate that guy. But man, what a wicked man! Remember our kids can't go to school now. Remember we had to sell our two cars. Remember our house was in foreclosure. We lived in this hut. Yeah, guess what? He just repented of his sin. He got saved, and guess what? He's going to pay us four times what he took. Good day in the Reed House, right? I mean, we are we are celebrating. Repentance leads to joy, not just for the man, but for everybody, because there's restitution, there's healing, there's hope. Repentance is not just the things internally, but the ways it has affected others externally. And I love this. Zacchaeus was determined to do far more than the law demanded. If you go back to Exodus 22, you'll see that really the only type of of thievery that had to be repaid fourfold was those if you violated the law, it was abusive, aggressively violent, and he tried to kill. And then, if you actually restored almost everything that was wrongfully taken, it was only one time. So he's going, man, I'm going to go above and beyond what the law says. I'm going to give everybody back four times what I owe them. Tremendous mercy in his heart, tremendous grace. Because he received grace, he's an agent of insane grace, of insane kindness, of insane generosity. Absolutely profound. And I love it. Jesus forgives him and he changes him. And that's just the big theological word for regeneration means you are made new, you now have a new spirit in you, you now have a new Lord of your life, you are not Lord, God is Lord, Jesus is Lord, you now love Jesus, want to walk with Jesus, want to love and serve him, want to do what delights his soul, you want to do all those things, right, you, you're now living as a new creation, the Bible says, not just someone who's trying to be nicer and trying to be better, someone who's brand new, with new desires and new wants and new objects of affection and worship, which is primarily the triune God of the universe. And everything funnels down from that vein. And here you see him make a public display of repentance. It was a change of allegiance, a change of life, which enables this regeneration. And it's amazing. He says, I want to be like you, Jesus. Not so that you'll love me, because you already have. Not so that you'll forgive me. (laughs) You've already purchased me. Not so you'll be pleased with me. Jesus already pleased the Father for you. He does it because his transformative fruit was birthed from a transformed heart. Right, we don't do anything to earn God's favor. We don't do anything to be changed. We're changed, and the evidence of your change is the fruit. Just read the book of 1 John, beautiful book. book. Hard book but reveals, hey, okay, this is evidence. Now that's gonna look a little bit differently for everybody. Everyone's not gonna be in the same exact category, but there has to be at least a desire in you when asked about that sin to repent of it, a desire to turn from it, a desire to walk in newness of life. At the end of the day, that's where your heart has to land. And we understand all of that first based upon the cross of Jesus Christ. So repentance is huge. This is what Zacchaeus basically did. Zacchaeus repented of his sin, and he walked in newness of life. Now, um, there are so many misunderstandings out there about repentance. So just just to clear the air for a second, true biblical repentance is not just so that you ease your conscience and peace of mind. Like, it's not just so that, man, I made, made a whole mess of my life, and because I made a mess of my life, I feel worse than I did yesterday. It's not, hey, yeah, I want to confess to this sin, so now my slate is clean. It's, first and foremost, I have belittled and defamed and harmed the image of God. I've grieved the Holy Spirit of God. And so, therefore, I want to turn from that sin and turn towards Jesus Christ. Right? Psalm 51, you have the greatest display of repentance from David himself after adultery, after all of these things. He walks and he says, God, you alone have I sinned against offended him and what's amazing is he bases the forgiveness he receives in that God is so loving he goes, because of your unfailing love, will you blot out all of my sin? Will you forgive me my transgressions? Not because I'm so good, not because I had a good quiet time week, not because I showed up to the synagogue. No, because you in your character, it's who you are as God. You are so relentlessly, ferociously loving, merciful, kind, gracious. According to that, will you forgive my sin and let me to walk in newness of life? Repentance understands first, it's always vertical before horizontal. But it is horizontal. And you seek restitution where that's necessary, just like Zacchaeus. So are there people in your life where you have repented of your sin towards God that you also need to repent to those people who you have hurt and belittled and gossiped about? Because man, repentance is not just vertical, it's horizontal. And all of that change makes a whole community of people rejoice. This is why we always say we want to aggressively go after gossip here. Because it will tear apart and disunify. We want to unify. We want to repent when we do those things so we can grow up and everyone can rejoice. Seeing healing, seeing hope, seeing good confessions in the faith. So here you see Zacchaeus do this, and it's so, so beautiful. Now, here's what's amazing. You see Zacchaeus' true repentance from towards Jesus. And Jesus says to him following that, today salvation has come to this house because he too is a son of Abraham. Now some of you are going, that's a little weird. Is Jesus saying that you can only find salvation because you're a Jew? Because you're a son of Abraham? The text seems a little bit confusing to me. I don't really understand what, what he's saying. So you must be a son of Abraham to find salvation? No, this is a statement about faith. Paul clears this up and further clarifies this in Galatians 3. You can see it on the screen, Galatians 3, verse 5. Look at what Paul writes. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. That's insane. Abraham got the good news of Jesus Christ. He got the gospel, the foreknowledge, the the coming of the Messiah who would take away sins of the world. So he, he believes in the future work of Jesus. We believe in the past work of Jesus. Old Testament prophets are saved the same way New Testament saints are. It says, as he was preached the gospel for him, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Abraham is the model believer, is what Paul's saying. He had faith in the future work of Jesus Christ, he had faith in the promise of God. And because of his faith in God, it was credited to him as righteousness. He was given the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's amazing. Credits like it just gets deposited in your account. Like let's say you went to the bank today and saw you're a billionaire, right? Someone just credited you a billion dollars in your account. That's what God does in the gospel. He credits you his infinite righteousness, and this is what happened to Abraham, who by faith believed God. So so here's what basically Jesus is saying, because he fathered then a whole race in a spiritual sense. He fathered a whole race who, like him, Gentile Jew would believe by faith in Jesus Christ, they would be saved, they would be made new, they would be adopted into the family of God. And so here you have every man who believes like Abraham, who has faith in Jesus Christ, are blessed alongside faithful Abraham. So Jesus is basically saying, this is how it's always been done. Didn't you know, I mean, from Abraham on, do you know this is always how people have gained salvation, gained righteousness? It's never through works, never through merits. The whole sacrificial system was to point outside of itself saying, you can't do this, you need someone who can, and eventually Jesus comes and shows us, hey, this is the one spoken about. If you believed in that forecoming Messiah, that one who would purchase men and women to himself, hey, you're in the camp of God, you're in the family of God. Those who by faith alone believe that it had happened, that he secured it, that he did it, that he's done it, that he's paid it, hey, you're in the family of God, it's all by faith not by works. That's what you see all the way through the scriptures. And so Jesus is showing this. You remember back to Luke chapter 3 with John the Baptist? He walks in. He announces the Messiah and goes, hey, hey, uh, he's here and I'm proclaiming a repentance for forgiveness of sin. And what does he do? Hey, don't, don't just lean on your heritage. Don't lean on your Jewishness. Hey, it's by faith now. It's through repentance now that people are secured in the family of God, Jew and Gentile that this gospel goes to the world. And amazing, because they're thinking, Zacchaeus once was a traitor, so he's no longer a son of Abraham, even though he was Jewish. And here's what's amazing, he's no longer a traitor, he's a son. That's quite an exchange for the day. Not just from traitor to citizen, traitor to son of God, of the Messiah of Jesus Christ. This is why religion teaches that we're saved by our fruit. We don't believe that, right? This is every system outside of the Christian faith. Do some works, try really hard, and God will probably judge you on a curve. No, repentance is we're saved by the fruit of Jesus. His life, his death, his resurrection. And that not only forgives sin, it not only credits righteousness, it not only pays a debt, it not only takes away wrath, it makes you new. It changes you. It transforms you. And that's why Jesus ends by giving this mission statement. The son of man came to seek and save that which was lost. This is why I came. I came to save sinners. The super righteous ones, in their self-righteousness, not righteousness dependent on me, and the super sad, the super outcast, the super lowly, both find meaning and infinite riches in the gospel, in the cross of Jesus Christ. Both find the same peace with God, the same reconciliation with God, the same unity with God, in the cross of Jesus Christ. So whether you're led to despair or led to pride, you can still be led to Jesus. Praise the Lord. No other system will let the self-righteous and the despair find hope, meaning, life, and salvation. Because either you keep doing what you wanna do so that you find more arrogance in your works and merit, which further, according to the scriptures, damns you, or you find further despair because you can't do it, so you find further despair, further depression, further angst, which doesn't lead you anywhere. Yet the gospel rips you either down or up and brings you to a place of newness of life. It's beautiful what we have in Jesus. That's why you have to start with Jesus. And this is why he says in this Basically, mission statement. If he were to wear a badge, this is his mission statement. I came to seek and save that which was lost. Those who are misplaced. Those who are outside of under, being under worship to God. Those who do not love him. Those who have belittled his name. You're misplaced. You're searching for fullness of life. Not how God has wired you and made you to find it and operate in it, but you have found it outside of that, which constantly leads to destruction, to despair, to angst, to unrest, until you meet Jesus. And like I always say, the ceiling is removed and you go past the ceiling in worship to places and heights that you did not know were there. So now for Zacchaeus, money is not his treasure. Jesus is. For now for Zacchaeus, prestige and fame and accolades and all the things that he boosted himself up with, who knows why he got into that profession, but it was likely because he wanted a God outside of Jesus. And he finds it, and the rich young ruler did not. Yet God showed kindness to him and he makes his enemies his friends. Amazing. I just want you to think about for a minute, if you're a Christian, and it is so important, guys, it is so important that we understand the weight of his glory, the weight of his holiness, the weight of his might, that should bear on us in a sweet way that makes us love our salvation, no doubt. But man, you are equally a friend of God. Like, I know we talk about the sonship aspect and him being a father, but you're a friend. There's intimacy there. There's encouragement there. There's life there. There's hope there. I mean, there's there's warmth there. Did you know that? And you're not just a friend. You're a friend who was his enemy. This is why the gospel always pushes us farther like Zacchaeus in his repentance. You don't just deal with enemies, you love enemies. Because you mimic the great gospel of God who loved his enemies. And that's you and me. We like to put other people in that category. No, it's you and me. So know as he came to seek and save that which was lost. I love that he says this as he's way on the cross to pay Zacchaeus' his debt and make him new in his resurrection. So for those of us this morning, I think it'd be great just to practice some repentance. Maybe some of you have been busy repenting of everyone else's sin and not your own. So how about you lean into your own heart? Lean into your own soul? So God, reveal where there needs to be some repentance here, some turning from sin, some believing God's call on my life, being Lord What's the sin I'm entangled in that you want to free me from and find me greater joy in? What are the ways where I'm messing around with sin? Believing that it might lead to a better life than what I have in Christ? What is the God that I'm secretly worshiping in my heart that's outside of him that I think eventually will make my soul at rest, but I really need to be brought back to you? in friendship, remembering that I'm a friend of God, friend in Jesus, Christ crucified, I'm one with him, his body for mine, his death for mine, his blood for mine. And then some of you are not Christians at all and you need to repent of your sin against God in a saving way. You've lived your whole life believing that your way is better, that you should be God, that you should be the author of all things and God says you can't. And so intrinsically in you there's nature that's wrong and there's outward actions that are wrong and he saved you from not just the outward actions but from the nature of your sin where intrinsically you can't fix that. That's why the gospel is such good news. The fullness of life and things that you're trying to find can only be ultimately ratified in the cross of Jesus Christ. And so this is why just to encourage us, some of you maybe have believed wrongly or been taught that um, to be a Christian means that you repent just one moment in your life. The Bible consistently say, no, repentance is all of life. Yes, you repent in a moment of salvation where God declares you righteous, but then it's an ongoing life of repent and believe, repent and believe, repent and believe the truths of God, repent of the sin and believe the truths of God. And repentance is not looking at your sin, repentance is looking at Jesus. It's not trying to change and manage your sin, it's getting your eyes off of your sin and looking at him, looking at his glory, looking at what he's done and finding life there. So that the power of looking there breaks the power of that sin in your life. So we are not sin managers. That is not Christianity. We are freed slaves who enjoy a better treasure. Let's ask him for help. God, thank you that you're a God that can free us from the damning, apparent pleasure and enticement of sin. God, thank you that you are a crucified, risen Savior that we can look to For the fullness of our salvation, a God who came to seek and save that which was misplaced, that which was lost, that which was wandering and rebellion to your name. God, thank you that you made us right in Jesus Christ. God, would you grant some humility in our hearts this morning? Would you help us to step off of some platforms we need to step off of and look at you honestly? Would you engage our souls in ways that are helpful in this moment? Would you bring about new life today? Would you bring about new creations today? God, we're so thankful that the church is not to be primarily a group of loving people, hospitable people, meek people, honest people, but repentant people. Lord, help that to mark us as a people God, help those witnessing this gathering today to be wooed and called by what you've done in the cross of Jesus Christ. Might they even realize you are calling their name this morning into friendship as they stand as an enemy of God that can be made a friend of God because of Jesus. God, would they find sweet salvation today? Would today be the day of salvation in this place? And God, as we observe the Lord's Supper and remember and consider by faith, what you've done in your broken body and shed blood, which was the body that had to be broken and the blood that had to be shed from a pure, righteous substitute for us to take our place and pay our debt. Might we do that joyfully, gladly. And might we sing to you, thanking you for all that you've done. It's because of Jesus. We thank you in Jesus' name, amen.